please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua chapter 7. And we will be reading together this morning the entire chapter. Joshua chapter 7. These are the words of God. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up to attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say? When Israel has turned their backs before their enemies, for the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? And the Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up, consecrate the people, and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For thus says the Lord, God of Israel, These are the devoted things in your midst, O Israel. 
You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near, tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zerahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household, man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him, and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver, and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. These are the words of God. You may be seated. And now, brothers and sisters, um, I ask you to please um, join your hearts to mine as we lift up a prayer to our God. Holy Father, we come into your presence this morning. 
and we recognize, as the prophet Isaiah saw in his vision, that you are holy, holy, holy. Lord, you hate sin and iniquity. Evil may not dwell with you. You are a God of justice, but we praise you that you are also a God of mercy. Holy Father, that the punishment, the wrath that should have been poured out upon us was poured out upon your Son as our substitute, and that we, in turn, have been clothed with his righteousness and are able to come before your throne of grace, united to him as your adopted children. Father, we thank you for that privilege that is ours in the covenant of grace that we are able to cry out to you as our Abba Father. And Lord, we thank you also that you have made us a kingdom of priests to you, united to our great high priest, the Lord Jesus, such that we are able to offer up our lives to you that we are able to offer up thanksgiving to you, sacrifices of praise to you. Lord, we ask that the worship that we have offered up already this morning, the worship that we are offering up even now and will continue to do during this service would ascend before your throne as a pleasing aroma. Lord, that we would honor you as we worship you in spirit and in truth today. We thank you for this church, Holy Father. We thank you that for now 11 years, you have shown such favor to her. Lord, we are humbled when we consider the dire straits, frankly, that this church was in only a few years ago and to see how you have preserved us and blessed us. And we pray that you would help us to continue running the race that you have set before us. Father, that we would not forget our first love, that our hearts would not grow cold or hardened. Father, that Jesus would be the greatest delight of each one of us in our individual lives, and Father, that Jesus would be the center of all that we do as a church and that we would always look to him as our king and the source of our strength and hope, as an embassy of his kingdom and the kingdom of this world in this age. Holy Father, we pray for our sister church in Greentown, Pennsylvania, Bible Fellowship Church, and we ask that you would make your face to shine upon them as well, even this very morning as they gather to worship you. We ask, O oh God, that you would bless Pastor Dave Johnston and the other elders there as they are desiring to raise up a qualified man to serve with them in the office of pastor. We pray that you would help them to make wise decisions, that you would help them to um, examine well the candidates and that you would see fit to raise up another laborer there to serve alongside them. Father, we also pray for our brothers and sisters who even on this Lord's Day are worshiping you under persecution, under the threat of imprisonment, even execution. 
Lord, for the Christian church that is enduring right now in North Korea. We pray that they would be safe. Lord, we pray that you would equip them by your Holy Spirit to endure to the end, to receive that crown of life that our Lord Jesus promises. Holy Father, that they would not be overwhelmed by fear of their wicked rulers, but that they would share the gospel with their friends and neighbors who need to hear it, that they would be able to gather away from the watchful eye of their um, tyrannical um, rulers. And Father, that you would encourage them, draw near to them by your Holy Spirit, that you would sustain them. Father, we consider also this morning the war, the conflict that has been raging for months now in Eastern Europe and Ukraine. Father, we pray for peace. Lord, we pray for an end to the violence and bloodshed. We pray for justice to prevail there. And we ask, as we know that the hearts of kings are directed by your sovereign and omnipotent hand, that you would not allow this conflict to escalate into a nuclear war. Oh God, that you would put a stop to that. We trust you. We know that you are working out your good, holy, and perfect will. But Lord, we also pray that you would bless our brothers and sisters who are being caught in this war over there. Father, we pray for um, Karina, our brother Justin and sister Leanne's daughter, um, as she is over there. Lord, that you would protect her from any um, violence, any harm being done to her. But Father, most importantly, we pray that you would save Karina. Oh God, we pray that you would give growth to those gospel seeds that were planted by her parents. Please have mercy on her. Cause her to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, to flee to him as her refuge. To bow to him as her Lord. We ask that you would do that work in her heart. Father, we pray for um, Vice President Kamala Harris this morning. We pray that you would have mercy upon her and her husband. Father, we pray that you would grant her a heart that loves you and loves your law, that you would cause her also to recognize that she is a sinner in need of Jesus Christ for salvation. Father, we pray that she would use her position as the vice president of our nation for the promotion of good and justice and righteousness in our land and not for wickedness, that she would not promote and advocate for the things that you hate and detest. Lord, we pray that you would have mercy on our vice president. We pray for um, Tiago Oliveira, um, the missionary that we are supporting in Portugal, Holy Father. Um, we thank you for the opportunity at the RBNet General Assembly that you gave us to talk with him um, and to seek to encourage him. Um, we give you thanksgiving for the labor that he is engaging in as the pastor at First Baptist Church of Lisbon. We ask that you would bless that congregation 
that you would give them a great zeal for Christ and for the gospel, that you would equip Tiago to preach the word faithfully there and to shepherd the souls that have been entrusted to him. Lord, we pray for the faithful training of the students at Martin Booster Seminary and that um, qualified men would go out from there and that they would be able to elder other healthy gospel-preaching churches in that part of Europe. We pray that you would sustain Tiago's family, O oh God, as they continue to adjust to their new lives there, that you would help them to be encouraged, and that they would, um, through everything, um, keep their eyes on Jesus. And Lord, in our own congregation, um, we know that there are those who are hurting, who are grieving, even this morning. Lord, we don't forget about our sister Kimberly, who has lost her father. Our sister Janice, who has lost her sister and we pray, O oh God, that you would bind up their broken hearts, that you would draw near to them, that you would embrace them in your fatherly arms, that as they mourn and as they grieve, um, that you would sustain them, that you would help us as a congregation to love them and to comfort them with the love of Christ um, during this time. We pray for our sister Sarah's mother, Mary, we pray that you would be gracious to her. We pray that you would alleviate any pain that she is experiencing. We ask that you would help Sarah as she continues to love and honor her mother through her caretaking, that you would bless Sarah's father as well as he tries to look after his bride's needs during this difficult time. Um, Lord, we ask that you would be gracious and make your face to shine upon the entire family. And Lord, we pray for our sister Leah as um, her C-section date approaches just a week from tomorrow, that you would preserve her and their baby girl through these um, last days of the pregnancy and that they would culminate in a safe delivery for both mother and child, that the surgery would go well and smoothly, that you would help and equip our brother Jared as he prepares for his family to grow. We give you thanksgiving, O oh Lord, for your expansion of the Ingersoll family. We thank you for all of the fruitful wombs that you have granted to our congregation. And um, Father, we just pray that you would bless them. Father, our brother Roger, um, we are grateful that you have given them a place to live down in Wilkesboro, we ask that you would help them through the moving process, the relocating, that all of that would go well. We uh, pray that you would equip Roger as he continues to lead his family um, through this transition down the mountain, and that you would be gracious to all of them. And Father, finally, um, we thank you um, for the ministry of Dr. Waldron, we thank you for his and Charlene's ability to be with us this morning and to worship with us. And we ask you, O oh God, that as he comes and preaches the word, that by your Holy Spirit, that you would work in our congregation, that you would transform us by the preaching of your word. Um, we know, Father, that in John 17, that our Lord Jesus prayed that you would sanctify us 
um, in your truth and that your word is truth. We believe that, Father, and we believe that your word never returns void, that it always accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. And so we pray that you would accomplish that purpose this morning among us. We thank you for the privilege of the, being able to read your word and being able to sit under um, the preaching of your word. And Holy Father, we lift up all of this to you in the name of our advocate and high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, um, it is my honor and joy to introduce to you all Dr. Sam Waldron, who is going to be delivering um, our sermon this morning um, as we celebrate 11 years of God's faithfulness, um, of our anniversary, of our Constitution. We are thrilled to have um, Dr. Waldron and his bride with us to celebrate with us. Um, there is an insert in your bulletin if you'd like a little bit more of a detailed bio and sketch about him. But Dr. Waldron has been in pastoral ministry since 1977. And as I'm sure most of you are aware, he is currently serving as a pastor at the Grace Baptist Church in Owensboro, Kentucky. He has been there for about nine years, and as I'm also sure that many of you are aware, that also means that he is our dear brother and sister Ryan and Mackenzie's pastor. Um, he is also the president of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, which he was sharing about during the Sunday school hour. Um, pastor Kaysen and I are both students at that seminary and have benefited greatly from the instruction that we have received from Dr. Waldron and also from the other professors that are on the faculty there. And um, I don't want to embarrass Dr. Waldron because I know how it is when people just go on and on about you, but um, I do feel compelled to say that he has been used mightily um, by the Lord over the last several decades as a blessing to the church and specifically to the Reformed Baptist movement over the last um, number of years. Um, he quite literally wrote the book on the confession. <laughs> um, his modern exposition of the 1689 is a wonderful resource that I would commend to you, and we are thrilled to have him and his bride, um, Charlene, with us today. And uh, Dr. Waldron, will you please come now and preach the word to us? If I can ever find my sermon, I will preach the word to you. There we go. <clears throat> Let me just say what a delight it is to be here for my wife and myself. What a beautiful place Jeffrey, West Jefferson is in Ash County. We had no idea, but we have greatly enjoyed our time and the beauty all around us. What blessed people you are to live here. Um, and um, I also rejoice in the many connections that uh, we have with, uh, with this church. Um, uh, not only Ryan and Mackenzie that uh, we love so much and their children, Junia and Priscilla and Ada and Asher, but also uh, gotten to know your first pastor, Luke Peterson, who now pastors in Verona, Virginia at a church that I know well. And so we're very thankful uh, for the privilege of being here today, and what a delight and privilege it is for us to preach the word to you. <clears throat> Our Lord's disciples once asked him, teach us to pray. 
He did so in what we call the Lord's Prayer. But you will not disagree with me, I think, when I say that even with this paradigm of prayer, we still stand in need of the scriptures and also as a whole and continually to teach us to pray. We still stand in need of learning experientially the great motivations and arguments that should be embodied in our prayers. And it is this reality that stands behind my message in this hour. So please turn to Joshua 7.9. I know the whole passage, as Pastor Quinn read it, is a little forbidding. Uh, that won't be the tone or thrust of my, of my message. I'm going to be speaking on Joshua 7.9, and especially uh, its last words. For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it, and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth, and what will you do for your great name? I want to focus our attention on these final words of Joshua's prayer. We may call this his plea, and it is the theme of this morning's message. What will you do for your great name? Now, by way of introduction, I have three things to say. Uh, before we look a little more closely at Joshua's plea in Joshua 7-9, we need to notice three things by way of introduction. First of all, the cause of his prayer. Joshua's army, from one perspective, had suffered only a very small defeat before the walls of Ai. Yes, tragically, a few men had been killed. True, Joshua's first small assault on that small city had been rebuffed. Yet it was nothing we might think, that they should be very worried about, or the great general should be very worried about. But he was. When word came of the defeat at Ai, General Joshua felt the ground shifting under his feet. He felt the momentum of the war for the land of Palestine changing. Joshua was a wise man a prudent man, a vigilant man, and he was an experienced man. He knew that while nothing succeeds like success, nothing fails like failure. He well understood what the defeat at Ai might do for the mentality of the Canaanite nations. Up to this point, they had cowered in fear and fled. The victory at Jericho had raised this panic to new heights in their hearts. Nevertheless, Israel was still vastly outnumbered by the Canaanite nations. Joshua could see plainly in his, mind eyes, his mind's eye the dark possibilities, the risk, and the dangers in what might have seemed to some a little defeat at Ai. More than this, the defeat at Ai raised perplexing spiritual issues in his mind. Why had God let it happen? Joshua had articulated those issues in prayer to the Lord in verses 7 and 8. Look at them. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? Well, you can see there the questions flooding Joshua's mind. We can see questions flooding his mind. And what was, 
Those questions were things like this. What was God doing? Where were God's mercies? Why had they ever crossed the Jordan? Questions like these and many more suggested by unbelief and discouragement flooded his mind. And we find him then prostrate in prayer with his clothes torn in deep grief in Joshua 7-9. And the elders of Israel are there with him in the same posture. This was a corporate lament of the leaders of Israel led by Joshua. And so we read there in Joshua 7-6, Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. But notice secondly, by way of introduction, the character of his prayer. Does it seem to some of you that I have chosen my text very badly? (laughs) I would not blame you for thinking so. I'm going to tell you to pray like Joshua. But on this occasion, God tells his servants to stop praying. Look at the next verse, Joshua 7.10. So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Now, in spite of this response of Yahweh to Joshua, I want you to see that this was not a bad prayer. Rather, it was a good prayer, just at a bad time. Yahweh's response to Joshua in verse 9, in other words, was not a critique or criticism of the content of Joshua's prayer itself. So let me ask a couple of questions here. Why was it a bad time to pray? Because it was, as God says, a time for doing and not just praying. You remember the story? It was read to you. It's encapsulated there in verses 11 and 12. Israel sinned, transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them, stop praying, start doing something, is the point that Yahweh makes. Thus, this was a time for action, not supplication. It was not a time for praying for help, but for dealing with sin. This is why in verse 10 and again in verse 13, Yahweh tells Joshua, get up, rise up. So that's why it was a bad time to pray. But why was it still a good prayer? (laughs) Well, it was a good prayer because it was a plea for the glory of God's great name. And how can that ever be bad? In fact, how can it not be just the best way and reason to pray of all things? There's nothing more important than God's name. There's nothing for which God himself is more concerned than his great name. Recall Old Testament texts such as these. Exodus 9.16. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth, words said to Pharaoh. This is the explanation for the greatest exhibition of the redemptive power of God in the Old Testament history of Israel. What motivated God to allow Pharaoh to rise to such power, only to be utterly destroyed? What motivated God to providentially provide that line of history? What was it? What motivated God to do that? It was his name. It was that his name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. Or another text, 1 Samuel 12, 22, For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. 
the leaders of Israel had been brought to realize the great and evil sin they had committed in asking for a king. They had committed a great wickedness, according to 1 Samuel 12, 17. Samuel, however, reassures them that in spite of their sin, God would not abandon them as his people. And what is the reason for this great mercy? It is his great name. 1 Kings 8, 42. For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm when he comes and prays toward this house. This was the day of the dedication of Solomon's temple. It was a day full of high hope for the future, and one such hope was that the Gentile nations would hear of God's mighty hand and hear of his great name. Or Ezekiel 36, 23, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. This passage is predicting a second and greater exodus, in which God will bring his people back from among the nations and give them hearts sprinkled clean from their sin. And what is the divine reason for this greater display of his redeeming power? It is to vindicate the holiness of my great name. To say it briefly, there is nothing God more loves. There is nothing for which God is more concerned than the glory of his great name. Any prayer, then, I argue, that is pleading for the glory of God's name is and must be a good prayer. This may have been a bad time to pray, but it was a good, still a good prayer to pray. And that being the case, I want you to think about my third thing by way of introduction, the consideration of his prayer. And there are three things to be considered in this prayer its specific request, its sovereign resource, and its supreme rationale. First of all, its specific request. Its specific request, we can put this way. What will you do for your people, Israel? This is the specific request of Joshua. Look again at the constant references to Israel in verses 7 to 9. When Joshua asks, what will you do for your great name, he means to say, what will you do in relation to your people, Israel? Joshua said, alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan? Verse 8, O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned back before their enemies? They will surround us and cut off our name. From the earth, and what will you do for your great name? It's clearly the cause of Israel for which Joshua is specifically praying. Later, we shall see that his warrant or argument for praying for them is the great name of Yahweh, but his specific concern is for Israel. He prays for the glory of God's great name. That is his argument. But he prays for Israel, that is his burden. And that is his concern. Now, this was a perfectly legitimate focus for Joshua's prayer. Israel, by God's own redeeming activity in Egypt, was God's covenant people. 
God's name was on them. The church of Christ is by a new and better covenant, also God's Israel. The church is the Israel of God, Galatians 6.16. Gentile Christian Christians are grafted into the one olive tree of the new Israel, Romans 11, 16 to 24. The members of the church, all of them, are citizens of the commonwealth of Israel, Ephesians 2, 11 to 19. God's name is on us. As the new Israel as well. And thus we may find comfort and warrant in Joshua's prayer to pray for the church because it is God's Israel as well. And why is this important? Because it means that we have even more reason to pray for the new Israel, the church, than Joshua had to pray for the old Israel. He could pray for old Israel because God's name was identified with her before the nations. But she was only a holy nation candidate. If she kept the covenant, she would be a holy nation. We are the holy nation through the work of Christ. And there's even better reason then to focus our prayers on the church of Christ than there was for Joshua to focus his prayers on the nation of Israel. That was his specific request. But now notice its sovereign resource. When Joshua asked, what will you do for your great name? The implication is that God might do anything and could do anything. It is that God has sovereign power to do anything he wills. We remember the oft-repeated affirmation of the Old Testament. I am Yahweh. Is there anything too hard for me? Too difficult for me. Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you, and at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. Jeremiah 32, 27. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? No, nothing. In response to this prayer, God might, God could do anything he wanted. And so we come back to our, to our prayer request. What will you do for your great name? This question is rich with encouragement. When we ask such a question in prayer, it reminds us that there is nothing too difficult for our God. In answer to our prayers, he might, he could do anything he pleases. He is Yahweh, and there is nothing too difficult for him. There is a divinely sovereign resource called upon by Joshua and assumed in his plea. But there is not only a specific request and a sovereign resource, there is a supreme rationale. There is a supreme rationale. We find this too in the great question. What will you do for your great name? 
By this I mean that there is here the best of all arguments for God to act on behalf of his people. There are other arguments which may and should be used in prayer with God. His mercy towards us should be pleaded. His love for us should be pleaded. His promises to us should be pleaded in prayer. All these are good and proper pleas or arguments to use in prayer. Do we use them? We ought to. But fine as these arguments are, they are not the greatest argument. That is the one found in our text. What will you do for your great name? But that raises a question. What is the name of God? What does the Bible mean by the name of God? Well, no scholar has perhaps thought more deeply about this than the great biblical theologian Gerhardus Foss. In what is probably one of the most important books written in the 20th century, his biblical theology, he enumerated three things to which the name of God refers. Would you like to know what they are? He writes, there is further to be distinguished a threefold significance of the term name in its religious connection. And then Voss briefly lays out the three stands of this significance. Here's the first thing he says. First, it may express one divine characteristic, that which we call an attribute. The Old Testament calls the name of God holiness. God is holy, it says. That is his name. But here's the second thing. Next, he says, the name of God can stand for all that God has revealed concerning himself. This is the name of God. In this sense, it is simply equivalent to God's revelation, to divine revelations. God's name is glorious in all the earth. And here's the third and last thing he mentions. In the third place, the name of God comes to stand realistically for God himself. The name is equivalent to God in theophany when God appears to men. Can I summarize in my own words these three great thoughts of Voss about God's name? The name of God is what he is. The name of God is who he is. The name of God is what he has said. This is the name of God. Can we pray for the name of God? Can, can I pray, as I think of Owensboro, Kentucky, that God will bless his Israel there and that he will raise the truth out of the streets where it's been trampled upon? Can I pray that that would be done for his great name? Yes, because the truth of Scripture trampled on it is, as it is in our country. This, this is God's truth. This is God's name, and we may pray. What will you do for your great name? It is who he is, what he is, and what he has revealed. This is God's name. This is the name of God. This name of God that must not be profane, but which must be held up and exalted. All that he is, all that he has said. Think of texts like these in confirmation of what Voss has said. There he called, did Abraham, 
next to the Tamarisk tree at Beersheba. And there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. Genesis 22:14. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. See, that's the name of God. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Exodus 15, 3. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Exodus 34, 14. For you shall not worship any other God. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. What is, what is the name of the Lord? It is his greatness. It is his jealousy. It is the fact that he is a warrior. It is the fact that he is a provider. It is the fact that he is the everlasting God. This is God's great name. Who he is. What he is. And what he has revealed in his word. And, dear brothers and sisters, there are vast and consoling practical implications then in this prayer for the glory of God's great name. The first thing we learn is this. We learn to pray with a great and the greatest argument. Have you prayed? Have you said in your prayers, what will you do for your great name? Or is there manifest in your prayers very little concern for God's great name? Yahweh's great name. Who may use this argument for their prayers? The Israel of God may use it. You individually are a citizen of the commonwealth of Israel if you're a Christian here this morning. The church corporately is the one olive tree, Israel. And so that reminds us that his name is upon us individually as Christians. If you are a Christian, you may pray for yourself by asking, asking your Savior, what will you do for your great name? You have taken upon yourself the great name. You have believed in your heart. You have confessed with your mouth, and you have been baptized into the great name. That's true, isn't it? You ever think about it that way? His name is upon you. Thus you may use this prayer to pray for yourself. As you think of your battles with remaining sin, you may pray, what will you do for your great name? As you think of your attempts to serve God and be useful, you should remember that you are identified with God's great name, and you may pray, what will you do with your, for your great name? And with regard to your sanctification and your service and your usefulness, offer all of those things you may pray, what will you do? For your great name, you may pray for yourself that way, all that you would. But his name is also upon our churches. This is also encouraging to remember. I have been praying for years now that God would make us at GRBC and Owensboro holy, that God would make us one, and that God would make us many. But here is the great argument I use for this. What will you do for your great name? And can you pray this? Will you pray this for your own church here, gathering church? What will you do for your great name? We exist because of and we stand firm for your great name. 
We're, we're here. We exist because of Scripture. We are here. We exist because Scripture was that important to us. We wouldn't be here if we didn't believe Scripture and didn't want that truth of Scripture exalted out of the streets where it's trampled by our wicked generation. What will you do, should we ask? Must we ask for your great name? What will you do for your great name in Grace Reformed Baptist Church? What will you do for your great name at Gathering Church? How will you use us? How will you magnify your name in us? What will you do for us? What will you do for your great name? You may, I think, pray in this way for your church. But we learn, secondly, to pray with great expectations. With great expectations. What might, what will God do for his great name? There are great expectations in this question. Does it seem outlandish to expect such great things from God? Does it seem selfish and self-aggrandizing to expect such great things from God? Does it seem utterly at odds with how unimportant, small, and weak we are? Yes, and how sinful we are? Yes, it may seem inconsistent with that, but the standard by which we must measure our prayers is not our desert and not our weakness and not our sins. The standard by which we must measure what might happen in answer to our prayers is God's great name. The question is, the question is always, what will you do for your great name? The answer to that question is that, as we have said, Yahweh might do anything. The answer is that for his great name, he might do wonderful things for us and in us. But then third, we learn that we must pray with a great connection. We must pray with a great connection. What is the most important thing you must have to pray effectually? to pray that prayer which avails and prevails, that effectual fervent prayer of the righteous man that avails much. If we would pray effectively, we must pray on the basis of our connection with God's great name. The most important thing is to have a strong connection forged with God's great name, a strong connection forged between you and the great name of Yahweh. I love that story of Hezekiah. What a blessing it was. <laughs> What a blessing it was when the servants of the king of Assyria derided God's great name. I read the text and I say, now you jokers have done it. <laughs> I remember Isaiah 37, 10 to 12. Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you, saying Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Syria. Behold, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands, destroying them completely. So will you be spared? Did the gods of those nations which my fathers have destroyed deliver them? Yeah, I read the text and I say, now you guys have done it. Now you've put God's great name at stake. Well, could Hezekiah have thought, now you've put God's name at stake in his defense of me and of my city. We may rejoice and pray with confidence. If God's great name is connected to ours. And fourth, lastly, 
and supremely, we learn that we must have real heart-deep concern for God's name. I certainly feel some measure of conviction of sin about my prayer life when I read that. Do you have real heart-deep concern for God's name, and does your prayer life show it? We must really care down to the core of our being about the glory of the great name of God. That means that we must have a heart-deep zeal for who he is, what he is, and what he has revealed in his word. That's what we must have. That's the heart of what our prayers must embody. And may God grant us that real heart-deep concern for God's name so that we can say honestly, truly, no tongue-in-cheek, no falseness, no fallacy, no externalism, no formalism, but heart-deep and really, we, should, we can pray, what will you do for your great name? Let's pray. <coughs> Sovereign Lord, give us consuming zeal for your word, your triune persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, blessed in your three persons, and your glorious nature. Deliver us from being consumed with our own name. Deliver us from building our own kingdoms and adorning our own name. Give us rather deep and consuming zeal for your great name so that we can say from the heart with a reality that we have never known before, what will you do for your great name? And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.